0: My name is Gunner. I play in a local Austin band called The Big Gun Show. I created this podcast to sit down with other songwriters, musicians, artists, and lovers of music to talk about their top five records that have inspired their lives and musical prowess. Today, I have Jesse Dayton on the My Top Five Records podcast. If you ask me, Jesse, he's a legend. He's also a good friend of my good friend, Shyla. He's got a career that I wish I had. He has a radio show on Gimme Country that just got picked up by iHeartRadio every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Central. You can listen to it on your phone, anywhere you want. It's killer. Check it out. He's worked on horror movies with Rob Zombie and has directed one of his own. He's written his own memoir called Bow Monster. Please buy it and read it. It's one of my favorite reads of this year. It, too, is killer. He's played with an insane amount of legendary musicians. When Waylon Jennings cut his hand making dinner, Jesse filled in for him on guitar. Waylon Sun Shooter is his good friend and producing his coming record. The list goes on. He's amazing. Late in season one, yes, I implemented quizzes into the mix on this podcast, and it will continue on the future podcasts for the foreseeable future. It don't matter what I'm going to ask because it's all fun and smiles. Today, I don't have my sound effects because we did this remotely, but we still had a ball. And if you're digging on what we're laying down, please give us a review on iTunes. You can find my top five records pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts. But if you were to give a star for each one of your top five records on the Apple iTunes platform, that's five stars, would be super appreciated. And I forgot to ask Jesse where he's taking his top five records, but he told me he would take them to Des Moines, Idaho. Excuse me, Iowa, because they need better music there. Well, let's get to the conversation, but first, close your eyes. You're back in Iowa. What five records do you have? Howdy, boys and girls. We've got Jesse Dayton on the podcast today. I am thrilled to have him here. Hello, Jesse.
1: My brother, how are you?
0: Good to be amongst. I am doing fabulous. I am ready to talk about your top five records. I've got them down as uh, Bob Dylan, Highway 61, Slim Harpo's Best Of, the Anthology Sessions, uh, George Jones, Super Hits, Joe Clay, and London Calling by The Clash. Joe Clay DuckTales. Yeah. All right. Let's start off with Bob Dylan. So, this
1: sure.
0: Highway 61 Revisited, this was Bob's sixth studio album. It was released in 1965. And by picking this record, Jesse, you yeah. have tied Bob Dylan with Willie Nelson for the most picked artist in, the, in my top five records history of the podcast.
1: Well, I think that makes sense.
0: It does. Uh, the Beatles were right behind him now.
1: Yeah, I see Willie, that.
0: Willie was out in front.
1: Well, I mean, you're talking to musicians. So, you,
0: yes, yes, I am. And so, you know, up until up until this point, Bob was pretty much just acoustic. Right. You know, this is kind of like the the thing that kind of got him booed moving forward.
1: Yeah. I mean, not only was he going electric, but for me, the real centerpiece of this record is not necessarily a song that was a hit. But you got to if he you know, if rock and roll really. You know, appeared on the scene in '55. You could say '54, '56. Yeah, we don't want to get in that whole like, who was doing jump blues or was it Fats Domino doing rhythm and blues? Like, without all that stuff, I'm talking about rock around the clock, a solid number one hit, rock and roll single for the radio that changed kids' lives forever, and and Elvis appearing on the scene and all these rockabilly bands. And if you listen to Tombstone Blues, Uh Tombstone Blues changed so much because he wasn't talking about pink Cadillacs and poodle skirts and (laughs) and things of a bygone era. You know, he was like he was adding poetry to basically a Sam Phillips rockabilly, his version of, of that music. Yeah, could agree more. And that was a huge turning point. And if you look at Dylan's career, especially with his later records uh, through the '90s and and 2000s stuff like that, he's basically singing the blues and singing rockabilly with these insane story, poetic stories over the top of this music. Yep. And and after musicians heard that. They were like, oh, you mean we don't have to sing about, you know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, the, for the, sure. The 50s stuff. We don't have to sing about that anymore. Not that that's anything wrong with that. But, and, and it's not. I mean, i am saying my fair share of, of, you know, classics and songs with classic kind of uh, imagery in it. But that song really holds the entire weight of the record for me in terms of almost inventing what will become Americana, what will become hybrids with rock and roll music. I like that. Yeah. So that's, that's my big spill on the record. And there's, of course, I love all the songs and, you know,
0: yeah no i I dig it so uh i don't know if you know this but i've implemented quizzes into my podcast so i give you multiple choice questions uh and here is number one i usually have a little sound effect because we're doing this remotely via zoom i I don't have my sound effects so it's a lot better when you get it wrong and "Ah." you're right but but we'll just have to do it without uh quiz question number one what is highway 61 is it a an east to west highway that has spectacular views all the way to california is it B, a southbound road ending in New Orleans and toward the blues? Or is it C, 61 is Bob Dylan's lucky number? I would say B. Correct, correct. Good job. Good job. That's right. Now, he named the album after the highway that connects his hometown and Minnesota down to New Orleans, goes through Louis, uh, Chicago, Louis, uh, St. Louis and all that down to the, the, uh, the Mississippi blues area. Yes. It, was, uh, it has been ranked number four on the Rolling Stones, 500 greatest albums of all time.
1: I mean, it's, it's amazing. Uh, Is the quiz part over, by the way?
0: Yeah. Just one quiz at a time.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Well, I was just going to interject um, that the guy named Bob Johnson, who produced the record, was it? -hmm. Uh, I think he was from Texas. He lived in Arkansas for a while, but he was a real hardcore uh, Nashville country guy and he ended up making several records with bob he did nashville skyline and you know he was making records like love that album by the way yeah he was making records with all kinds of country musicians so you know bob's inner uh kind of you know radar if you will of picking up on like hey man i got to go work with these people who work with Johnny Cash,
0: right? You know, like <laughs>
1: yeah. that was really early in the game for a rock and roller, free thinking protest singer, uh, yep. to, to, to say, Oh, I'm going to go where all these rednecks are who don't really like me, except for the cool ones and the musicians, right? And I'm going to go to Nashville and make this free thinking stuff you know and man did he shake up the entire music world
0: no no doubt no doubt i know that in it was like in 65 he returned from tour in england and he was like totally exhausted he was dissatisfied with what he was writing and all that stuff and he was in frustration he basically went and wrote 20 pages of verse and then he and he later he described it as a long piece of vomit (laughs) And he, he basically took that and he, and he boiled it down to four verses and a chorus, which turned into like a Rolling Stone. I love that story.
1: Yeah, and uh, I think um, you know the guy who uh, became a huge. He um, became a he. He started a record label. His name was Al Cooper. And Al Cooper got, he ended up playing organ on that song because they're like, we need an organ player. And he's like, I'll do it. He barely knew how to do it, (laughs) but he was a good enough musician where he could get that little hooky. I think he played on one of these other records too. Well, you know what's weird about Al Cooper is Al Cooper flew from LA to Georgia to a bar with about 20 people in it and signed Leonard skinner to his own label, to his own, uh, he had an imprint label for MCA, and that's how Skinner got their start. Who's
0: uh, Leonard Skinner? Leonard Skinner. Just kidding. Just kidding.
1: No, no. But you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, I do. Like that's crazy that you know that back then all you know, that music was so intertwined, but the public had no idea. You know?
0: Yeah, totally. And they're giving it; they all just twenty people.
1: Yeah. You know.
0: Well, I did read some from reviews. Ultimate Classic Rock reviewed it uh, and said Highway 61 Revisited is was biblical, epic, draining, harrowing, hilarious, and most of all, brilliant. Uh, Dylan painted his masterpiece and he wasn't even 25 years old.
1: I mean, he really did in a lot of ways. And, you know And What I was saying earlier about poetry being mixed, not that Muddy Waters and all of them weren't poets in their own way and they really were, but I mean, here's a guy, a young guy who's, you know, he's read a few books, you know, he's reading Joyce, he's, Mm -hmm. you know, he's hanging out in these amazing places in New York City that don't exist anymore, uh, where, you know, all the Algonquin writers wrote, and he's really, you know, he's typing his lyrics, he's really taking himself seriously as a writer, and not too many people were before Bob. Not too many people were.
0: Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. You know, anyway. This... All right. Well, here's one last review. Um, some albums are born of, of ether. Some are born of earth. A rare few refine both into a crystallized masterpiece. Out of Bob Dylan's entire disc- discography, Highway 61 Revisited stands as the brightest example of his work. It takes concepts he experimented with previously and solidifies them into liquid gold
1: really does. And, and then, you, you know, and I say, they brought in, uh, Bob Johnson, you know, who was hanging out in Nashville most of the time and he would go to Nashville later, but Bob came up to New York and there was this real, I mean, you know, like I said, Bob Johnson, you know, he's from, I don't know, the, somewhere in the Hill country in Texas. I'm not sure. Okay. Um, but a uh, little town and, this guy, you know, worked with Cash, and he went on to work with Leonard Cohen and Simon and Garfunkel right. and all these people. But his relationship with Bob—think about what that did for what all these bands that later that would come, whether it was Uncle Tupelo or mm-hmm. any that. of any any of these bands that were really kind of uh, seed bands. I mean, he was really ushering in heavy. American country music and American blues music into his rock and roll. Like, nope. You know, <laughs> people weren't doing it. You know, Zeppelin and all that shit didn't come out for another three or four years,
0: if not more than that.
1: ZZ Top wasn't out until 69 or 70 or, Correct. you know, the guys who really knew how to do that shit well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, when you hear, when people aren't into Bob and they hear this crunky voice and, and they and maybe they're not, you know, big Bob Dylan fans for whatever reason. Uh, this is a gateway drug record.
0: It's it's like the it's like the weed, you know,
1: it is. Yeah. So, it's like well, being California sober. Yeah, you <laughs> <laughs> do that.
0: Uh, OK, let's, that, that's awesome. I love this. Um, OK, so let's talk about Slim Harpo. This is somebody that I've never listened to. And so thank you. This is one of the beauties of doing this podcast is that I get to learn about new music. I save it all. And so now I get to go back and listen to it. This is what I want on a Sunday morning when I'm a little bit slow after a big, long night. And
1: I just want to chill. It's the best. I mean, I got to say, it might be my favorite American record ever made. Wow. That's
0: that's pretty big coming from you, Jason. And
1: and the reason why I say it is... um, so they made the record in Crowley, Louisiana, which is yes, right man. down the road from where I grew up, Beaumont, Texas. Right mm-hmm. there on the Beaumont's twenty minutes from the border to Louisiana. Crowley's right on the other side of Lake Charles. Yes, and and so they had this label called Excello Records. Rush out like your hair is on fire and buy those early Excello records. All the stars, but if you listen to the way Slim Harpo. Sings, and by the way, I did not put the Rolling Stones on this fi- on this list of five, and they are my favorite rock and roll band of all time.
0: I agree. Keith Richards is my hero. Uh,
1: yeah, I mean they are. I've been listening to them since I was a little kid. I've seen them dozens of times, like a lot. Um, They're and, online.
0: Let it bleed's online.
1: Yeah, and uh, but if you listen to the way Mick Jagger sings he is aping Slim Harpo so much that with this nasally thing and they, you know, they do, I think on exile on main street, they have a uh, uh, hip shake, the song hip shake. That is a song that shake is on hips, this yeah. record. Shake your hips. It's on this record by Slim Harpo and this record from Slim Harpo, the reason why I picked it and not Muddy Waters or Robert Johnson or any of these paramount important people is because the vibe that they achieve on the tracks of this record would go on to be what classic rock was going to turn into. Wow. Okay. Freddie, Freddie Freddie, um, King, King. the the blues guitar player from Dallas.
0: He's on my top five records too.
1: Yeah. If you listen to I'm going down, that would that would, all those English guys went and they ate that, and that was what would become classic rock music. It was based heavily in the blues, and all that. But if you listen to the vibe on these Slim Harpo's, all the shakers, like the yeah. they had this uh, uh, guy named Jockey that played cardboard boxes. They're not even real drums on half of the uh, record. Right. I don't even think the head drums in the in the studio at that time. And and and, and this guy named Guitar Gable is just as important in some respects as like Hubert Slumlin or some of the great, uh, you know, Otis Rush or any of those, cause he's playing the licks, man. He's playing the yeah. hooks and man, you, agree more. all I can say is if you go get slam Harpo greatest hits, Excello records, there will, there will not be one throwaway track on the entire record. And I mean, you know, everybody did their songs. I mean, King B, uh, you know, uh, Zeppelin did King B, ZZ Top did uh, God loving if you want it, babe. God loving if you want it, babe. All right.
0: So I got another quiz question for you, Jesse, and I think you're going to nail this one. Right. Speaking of the Rolling Stones, what Slim Harpo song was not covered by the Rolling Stones? Is it A, Route 66, B, Shake Your Hips, or C, King B? You mentioned King B, no, that that's like the well, title he track. Write,
1: he didn't write Route 66,
0: right? So it was Route 66. They didn't cover it.
1: Yeah, they actually do have a cover of Route 66.
0: I know that the Stones do, but the ones that were were written by Slim. Oh, anyway. oh 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 so we're on, oh! Because I'm, okay. I'm trying to give I'm trying to give Route 66.
1: That's yes. what I thought immediately. Okay, we're okay. so we're on the same page. There we to go to get there, man.
0: We're, we're nailing yeah. the we're nailing oh, no, the quiz no. questions. Yeah, they,
1: they did King B and Shake Your Hips.
0: Yeah, King B I think was on the first Stones album.
1: Uh, but they used to play. Uh, it threw me off because they used to play Route 66 all the time. Of course, oh, they Slim do. did, did yeah. not write that song. Right. Um. But you know, I, so check this out. Uh right when gambling came in, in like the 80s on the Gulf Coast, everything got super seedy and just like the mafia from New Orleans got mm-hmm. involved and there was like, the, you know, these rednecks, corrupt sheriffs and all this stuff was going on. And I can remember all the money they had and they had this record store that was right in front of the studio where they cut all the Slim Harpo stuff, right? And so me and my buddy went to this record store and they had a hundred copies of original vinyl of Slim Harpo. And we bought $800 <laughs> worth of records, right? And not just that record, but all kinds of records, right? And there was all this stuff. And we just played this gig for dirt money and like Lafayette. We're like, they were going to get the much, much of this stuff as they have. So we go back and we're like, hey, let's go back. We'll play a gig in Houston, make some money, and then we'll go back over and buy the rest of it. And then we'll just like resell it or trade it or whatever, hang on to it. We went back and these French guys had cleared out the entire record store. The
0: entire store.
1: The entire store. These record these French guys came in. They had all these old records. <laughs> they bought everything. They said, How much for the old store?
0: How <laughs> much?
1: They weren't, they weren't Cajun French. They were from like France. France, France. Okay. And they were record nerds. Uh, but I just thought that was an interesting little story, you know. And, no, I
0: and, love that. You know, I love the whole fact that, you know, that, I mean, you have the Stones, you have the Beatles that are sitting there obsessed with the blues, right? You know, this is where it all started over here in America. Absolutely. Listen to Muddy, listen to Slim Harpo, listen to Elmore James. I mean, that was, I mean, what was it Elmore or something that the Brian Jones uses as a, yeah, whatever. Sure. Uh, But, you know, it just like it influenced them and then it came back over here. And so that's that's kind of how rock and roll started, which is what you were just saying earlier.
1: Yeah, it really is. And but I think Slim Harpo, I can't put enough importance on him and the Stones. I mean, half of every one of their records sounds like songs off a Slim Harpo. record. If they're doing the blues or some kind of version of the blues, they might be thinking they're doing Muddy or right. whoever, but man, there's the, the shaker and all the stripped down stuff that Jack uh, Nietzsche did. Yeah, And uh, that's all Slim Harpo, Louisiana vibe.
0: So JD Miller is the guy that, who recorded him. And he said uh, it got the name Swamp Blues due to the characteristic echo and unusual percussion. He said, see, we didn't have a set of drums in my studio. And if the people we recorded didn't have their own drums, we used percussion. We improvised and it wasn't all that bad because it gave us a different sound. I used everything from a Coke bottle, beating a newspaper and a saddle from my horse.
1: <laughs> That's crazy. That goes, that goes well, JD Miller thoughts. was crazy. And he, he was not good in terms of uh, taking care of the publishing and songwriting <laughs> for the musicians. Right. Uh, he had a pretty, he's got a pretty checkered past on that whole thing. he also made some uh, very Questionable records he made some like just novelty records that just don't hold up well okay and 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 he he was kind of a he was kind of a ruthless right. yeah and uh and not to speak ill of the dead, but this is very common like you just it's on every google every store yeah. everything like that, but you know he was uh, one of the early, like he was a Sam Phillips type guy, you know, he, he saw that these worlds were colliding. It's like, man, all these black musicians are coming in and they're talking about, you know, Hank Williams and all these white Zydeck, you know, white Cajun music country musicians are coming in and they're listening to, you know, whatever it was, you know, uh, so there's a super hybrid, crazy stuff that 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 permeated throughout the planet and started in in Crowley. Nice.
0: Well, speaking of CD and drunk people, uh, let's talk about George Jones. I mean, so this was
1: he's this from my a, hometown.
0: Is he? Really, I did, he is, isn't he? He's and Stardew Records too.
1: Yeah, Records. Yeah,
0: this one was released in '87. And it was on a budget line sampler of, of George Jones's. It, it,
1: totally. It, this was the reason why I did. Look, I could have gone and just been Joe Cool and gone, let's do a Live at Dancetown USA or, or She stopped
0: Loving Her Today.
1: Or one of the early, you know, obscure Star Day records. I've got those records. But the record that everybody had when you went to your grandparents' house right. back in the day was Super Hits. Yeah. That's what everybody had. And I love it. You know, it's just people, like this. people weren't record nerds. They were like, I just want the one with the most of the hits on it. And the reason why I really like Bartender Blues uh, off of that record. What what a great song! Just well, James T- James Taylor wrote it, right? I didn't know that. So, so, oh yeah, and if you listen to the song, the original George Jern's version, uh, you know what James Taylor know James Taylor is singing harmony up, throughout yeah. the whole. Course, and everybody looks on James Taylor as this soft rock guy. James Taylor was a junkie. <laughs> he was yes, trying. Yes, he was. To, yes, it he took was. him. It took him till the eighties to kick heroin. He was not like, you know. That was just. That's the narrative that people have been sold by FM radio. There you go. It was a way for them to market him, but he was really. This, you know, guy that Paul McCartney discovered in a cafe in New York playing acoustic songs. And his first deal was on Apple on Apple Records. But, you know, he was a huge country music fan. So for him to have this song cut by George Jones and I will say this, it might be the best George Jones vocal show of dexterity.
0: On Bartender Blues.
1: Of any track I've ever heard, ever, I'm a George Jones freak.
0: Okay, so here's the deal. I always say your Beatles or your Stones, and if you're Beatles, you're either Paul or John. Yes. I also say that I believe that you're either Merle or you're
1: George. Yes.
0: I think I know I'm Merle. Now yeah. I want to know why you're
1: George. Well, because he's a better singer. He's a, he can his his vocal range and his. He set, he, he influenced Merle. You know what I mean? Like, well, this is the deal. So you got Lefty Frizzell.
0: Uh-huh. And he
1: came over to Beaumont, Texas from Waxahachie in the 50s. He had Johnny Bush, all these people playing that would go on to be big deals. And they were all playing in his band. He went over to Starday. And he was the very first one who did that. Ah, ah, ah. The shit you hear Merle and George do all the time. Right. George Marceau, I think. Yeah, but but if you listen to, uh, you know, Misery and Jim, I mean, it's, it's like, it's super lefty. It, there's a lot of little trills and little things he does in his voice, you know, uh, and all that, I'm just trying to get home to you, all that, that's all very lefty. It's super lefty for Zell. That's who they worshiped. And so George really took Lefty's thing before Merle arrived on the scene. Yeah. George really became, I mean, there's a story. Ray Price told me this story. Ray Price and Hank Williams Sr. had done this radio show in Beaumont. And there's like, and the DJ's like, hey, there's this kid here. And he does great impressions of both of you guys. (laughs) Right. And they're rolling their eyes, you know, whatever. He comes in, he blows them away, and he turned out to be their favorite singer. I well, mean, that's what everybody was, said.
0: That's what Peyton, everybody Peyton's
1: said. favorite singer was George Jones before he died. Like he had heard about George, and George, you know, I mean, I know it's a lot to live up to, and you know, he had his—he was an alcoholic, and he had his bouts and. You know, that whole thing. And I got stories from my parents talking about him in, in Beaumont back in the day when he was like literally playing joints where there was like him, a fiddle, and a triangle player. He's playing guitar and singing. With a bottle of gin. Yeah. And uh, but I really think the George Jones is the greatest all-time country singer, not songwriter.
0: That's fair. That's fair. I, I'm just talking about not not necessarily song. I'm talking about the vocal ability,
1: and vocal ability, and it's it's crazy. He, no one slips in and out of their falsetto, and no one goes so low and then so high uh, the way Jones does. And anyone else who tries it, they sound like they're gimmicky and they're at they're being one of you know what That's I fair. call. That's what I call these athletic singers who wear me out, (laughs) you know, the girl who can't wait to just hit the high note and the first thing, like, do you know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah, no, I I I totally do.
1: And George never felt like that. And so I think he's a cross between Lefty Frizzell and a blues singer. Wow. Okay. I think that's. I think that's. I might have
0: to. I might have to make you a my favorite best of Merle because there's also that one song where they sing together.
1: I've I've, I've (laughs) been on stage with Merle. I love Merle. I think Merle. I think I don't think Merle's. He's not my favorite songwriter in country. Willie is, but Merle has written more great songs. Killer songs, yeah. Like no one wrote as many songs for that long name one person in country music i dare you like no one wrote that many songs for that long yeah merle did merle had the longest streak i mean he was Tough. still he was still writing great shit like before he died yeah
0: okay it's Amazing quiz question for you here about this record uh what song off super hits was uh the super hits record was george's first number one single was it A, White Lightning, B, Y, Baby, Y, or C, The Race is On?
1: Man, you know, I thought, well, all three of those were hits. First one. Um, let me see. His very first one. I would, I think, I think White Lightning.
0: Ding, was ding, 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 ding. You got
1: it. That's was it, it. White yeah, Lightning? That's, that's it. I think i was. I read a
0: couple of George Jones books and, and the Tammy Wynette one. So,
1: yeah, I'm
0: totally into them.
1: Yeah, so um, and he's one of the guys that I did not meet, okay. and then I always wanted to.
0: Right? Um, uh, do you ever have you ever listened to Tyler Mahan's podcast called Cocaine and Rhinestones?
1: I, I love it, and he's a good friend. I had dinner I'm, with him a few months ago.
0: I freaking love that podcast, and there's just one so
1: many people on the country music.
0: It really has, and I love the way he does it. it takes a while to get used to his voice, but after that, you're. yeah um he i love this book written by jack eisenhower with the title of uh he stopped loving her today george jones billy sharon the pretty much totally true story of making the greatest country album of all time that's a long title for a book yeah uh but he hated it and i was like i loved it i loved the whole like the way he was talking to me i loved reading it uh but tyler he he took a a big old crap on it
1: well i mean it happens you know i'm a uber, uber, duper Elvis fan. And I, I, every one of my friends thinks I'm crazy cause I don't like the new movie. I haven't seen it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just, it, we, we, but I will say this about Tyler and, and I'm not one of these like guys who's uncinematic thinker who's like, I have to hold it by documentary standards and I want it to be right. perfect. Like I'm not that I, I get filmmaking, I get licensing you know, story and all that stuff. And the kid's brilliant in it. He looks like a million bucks. And if you're Elvis fan, go see it. But I just, when they started mixing Britney Spears and and Backstreet Boys in new hip hop music in with his music while he's walking down Bill Street in 56, it just took me out Out. Okay, I Okay. You know, so I couldn't do that. But I will say uh, the thing with Jones, man, is... No one will ever be able to sing anywhere close to Jones. I've heard, I've heard John Anderson, and I've heard some other people come really close to Merle. I've heard some okay. people come. I've heard, I've, I've heard some really great, uh, like, uh, um, you know, some really great '80s guys that came along later. Yeah come really close to merle and have really great voices. it's not that they could sing as well as merle mm-hmm. but no one even is in the same ballpark as, as jones like you'd have to be just like out of your mind to step up to a microphone and be that
0: well that's what know? everybody said and that's why he had a, yeah. one of the reasons he had a big alcohol problem because he was so concerned about what everybody thought what if i fuck it up here you know? Yeah,
1: he, and he was an alcoholic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I hear that. You know, yeah, uh, which which happens a lot with creative people.
0: It does depression and.
1: Yeah, know. man. I mean, they're just trying to turn their head off. Right. Yeah.
0: You know, let's turn it over to Joe Clay and Ducktail. This was another record I had never heard of, and man, thank you. This is this is, again. Love this podcast.
1: It, for me, it is the number one barn burner rockabilly record yeah all time again go ahead no i was just gonna say like i love all the sun stuff i love the early elvis trio i love so much i mean i'm i'm a total nerd for for that kind of music and i played in a rockabilly band for a long time and but joe clay they went to houston texas to gold star studios which is the first place i ever recorded Okay. To record that record, um, and it's just sounds, it just sounds—it doesn't sound like a bunch of guys with bow ties on. Like, it's not Richie Cunningham, dude. It's it's yeah. it's 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 real wild, sexual, crazy. Yeah, for music. sure,
0: for sure. I mean, this was and back in uh, 38, dangerous. where he was born in 38,
1: and he's Cajun, man. You know, he oh, yeah. so has real names like Cheramay or...
0: Claiborne Joseph Cheramay.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he's from Cajun country. And, you know, he's got uh, uh, Mickey... God, what's his name? A uh, black guy plays some of the guitar on a rockabilly record, which is cool because right. that never happens. It's always like a bunch of hillbillies doing what they think is supposed to be the blues. <laughs> and uh, it's just... I mean, man, every song on that record is as good as every song on that Slam Harpo record.
0: Yeah, it's- I was I was blown away. It was incredible. Yeah, um, I love that he shared the stage the in Shreveport for the uh, what is it the Louisiana Hay- Hayride yeah. with Elvis. You know, and then like well, the next-
1: Elvis is Elvis had just gotten signed to RCA, and RCA mm-hmm. said, "Hey, uh, we got to get on this rockabilly thing." So they started this company called Vic Records, V-I-K. And that was an imprint on, and they're like, we'll put all these crazy rockabilly people that we don't want to fool with because you got to realize back then record companies were super uptight. Uh They were making their money off of Mario Alonso and easy listening music and classical and, and then these freak shows show up, you know, this integrated crazy electric thing that's happening. And they were like, okay. We're, and so one of the first artists they signed was Joe Clay. Right. And um, I got to meet him, got to hang out with him, got oh, to play with on. him a little bit nice. uh, before he passed away. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've talked to uh, Brian Setzer about it and they, I think they do like, I think their Stray Cats cover like four songs off of this one record. Wow. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I know that he appeared on the Ed Sullivan show, you know, um, before Elvis did. And then he kind of just, yeah, it, it didn't work. And he just kind of got depressed and kept driving a school bus or something like that around yeah, town.
1: Exactly what happened. It's, 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 you know, that's happened to quite a few uh, musicians. I mean, uh,
0: yeah. Then come the 80s, here's the Stray Cats, Elvis Costello, you know, this rockabilly crap is, or, Stuff yeah. has taken off. Yeah, yeah. There's a huge revival. You know, Europe comes asking for him. He goes ends up touring there. It, yeah. They found him in the middle, like playing New Orleans or Baton Rouge in some bar.
1: Yeah, yeah. And he goes over there and blows up all over again. It really became like a god in like places like Norway, Finland, mm-hmm. Sweden, uh, England, the UK. Had this huge London had a big like ton up Teddy Boy rockabilly scene, and he was like their you know, real deal.
0: So how do you think he got, who do you think smeared their sway on Joe Clay to turn him into who he was?
1: What do you mean? Like, how uh, do you
0: like, what was, what were the influences that, that hit him hard that, that turned him to this rock? And uh, I thing
1: think thing? that, I think that Joe Clay was listening to country music and blues music and singing gospel on Sundays with his family. And then when they got these electric guitars and started drinking and, you know, smoking weed and doing speed and doing all kinds <laughs> of crazy shit that they just went in there and got crazy. Like, cause you know, the repression of America up until yep. that point, I mean, you know, l- g- women were literally peeing themselves when they went and saw Elvis. It was mm. like, because they were told their entire life for decades and decades Uh, that you're not supposed to feel those feelings those are for you and your husband when you're alone and you know it's very kind of Protestant uptight uh you know and you know people like Joe Clay just freaked him out and so and he knew how to pour it on you know live show and the whole thing Um, and Joe Clay just you know, it's not about him being an underdog or him not ever. I never pick a great record because I think, oh, this guy should have done it. You know, yeah. like a lot of people say that there's a lot of real average rockabilly records out there from the 50s that the songs aren't that great. And just because it's rockabilly doesn't mean it's good. Yeah, you know, I and, dig it. Yeah, for sure. You know, you know what I'm saying? I could have easily picked Elvis or Johnny. um. Burnett trio or gene vincent or eddie cochran or any of the people yeah. who became big big time uh, but this joe clay record is wild it's it's <laughs> it's just pure unbridled below the waist sexual rock and roll music
0: i believe in the art of the album and i hate it that it's kind of gone away and granted vinyl's coming back so i'm very happy about that but i love the story that goes with the album to two a side i mean t- two first cuts two last cuts you know each side of the album you have to get them. the whole the whole process and and the the way that it flows and you just really don't get that that much today yeah you know and so like a lot of people don't pick uh greatest hits and so i was like oh jesse picked like two compilations yeah. but you yeah, had yeah. great reasons for them so
1: i did have great reasons because that's what people were listening to and you know in in and- Man, I wish I could pick up my computer right now and show you my, <laughs> my vinyl collection. I mean, I've got so many George Jones records that I could have picked. Right. It, but i picked pick that one because these are all gateway drug records for people who might not be into it. There
0: you go. Nobody's, Love it.
1: If somebody goes and buys super hits and they've never been into George Jones before, they're going to go, wow, every song is it great is awesome. on the record. You know? Yeah.
0: Right on. Okay, well, let's uh, let's dive into London Calling, the Clash. What a fantastic double album! Um, yeah, it changed my life. You know, it might be the greatest rock and roll album of that generation.
1: Um, I think of that generation, it probably is. I mean, it's definitely up there for sure. You know,
0: did you ever get a chance to listen to uh, the podcast called Stay Free about the Clash, okay. narr- narrated by Chuck D?
1: No, but I want to, and I it's, haven't done I, it I went out to
0: go try to find it because, uh, John Chipman chose the same album and yeah. I was like, here, I'll, I'll send it to you. I can't find it. It was incredible. So if you can, yeah, I heard it was it.
1: great, man. I didn't listen to it, but, uh, you know, last week, last Thursday, I was supposed to be playing the Strummerville stage at Glastonbury. Nice. The Joe Strummer foundation, uh, show. And I, and anyway, it didn't work out. We had, we had COVID in the band. We had to cancel some shows and, but we're going to go back next year, but London calling, you know, when I saw the clash, when I was a little kid in Houston, and I went with an older guy Mm -hmm. who had his, you know, he was 16 and had his learning learners permit or whatever. And we drove from Beaumont over to the Houston Coliseum to see him and Joe Ely. Opened mm-hmm. Joe. Right. And that was a real life-changing formative thing for me and I realized then that all the other music that I'd been listening to was my older brother's music and that this was my music. Yeah and, okay. And uh, I mean
0: you know I mean they're always Hey, the the class are so punk and everything, but when you listen to this record, I mean, there's horns, there's it's all this. It's right. like everything. Yeah, it's, uh, a it's so much roll. more. You know,
1: yeah, brand new Cadillacs, full on rockabilly. Uh, London Calling sounds very punk. I mean, Spanish Bombs almost has
0: supermarket
1: like a pop pop song to it. You know, um, it's just Guns of Brixton It's just like you know, full on dub reggae. Yeah. I mean, they are just like all over the map, like all great bands. They're experimenting, you know.
0: So here's one of my favorite stories about this record. Uh, So Joe and Mick had, you know, they're kind of of having writer's block. They hadn't written like a song in like a year or two. And they showed up at Vanilla Studios. In a matter of months, they had this new epic record. Well, they also needed a producer. And so they chose Guy Stevens. Now, Guy Stevens was a full-blown alcoholic, speed freak, but they just had to have him, right? Yeah. And this is my favorite part of the story. So no one knew uh, where Guy was. So Joe Strummer he had to go to all the pubs and where he was, where guy, where guy was rumored to hang out. So he finally found him. He was looking a lot older. And a guy turns to Joe and says, Have a drink. And Strummer said, Yes. And so London Calling was off and running.
1: Well, I believe that. I mean, Guy Stevens, they wanted him because he did Martha Hoople. And Martha Hoople was like, One of those bands never really broke huge in America. Right. But but even though all the young dudes was a really big song, but Bowie wrote that. Um, But Mott the Hoople, um, they they were huge. And and so, Mm -hmm. you know, it was a real interesting time um, for those guys because they were listening to a lot of Roots reggae music. Yeah. all these West Indy people were moving to the UK for jobs. And then they were also listening to the stuff that was pre, like the glam stuff and like, right, exactly. sweet, like sweet and, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, Bowie, especially, you know, Ziggy, sure. and all that. But um, the reason why I like London Calling as opposed to like, say, never mind the Bullocks or mm-hmm. Damn, The Damn, that record, which is brilliant, every right. song great, is uh, I just think the class show a lot more musicality. They stretch out way more. Um, Strummer was definitely this, you know, working man's poet type um, guy, even though he was raised in a kind of posh, environment um but you know they were thinking about bigger concepts It was kind of what i was saying about dylan earlier Mm -hmm. dylan added this these words to this roots music and it changed everything i think strummer did kind of the same thing he became this political firecracker right and and started you know see i mean he's really the guy who you know, there would be none of these other guys later without strummer. I mean, he's kind of the alpha of that whole yeah, kind of alpha male, but alpha omega, like the beginning and the end of, you know, I, I agree with that. I mean, if you see Billy, uh, Joe from green day and he's pissed off on stage and he's talking about Ted Cruz <laughs> or whatever, rest <laughs> assured he's, he's channeling
0: he's, his inner he's, strummer.
1: He's channeling his <laughs> inner strummer. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. No doubt. Okay, so a couple quiz cool questions. I think you're going to nail this one. Uh I've got two for you. Who was on the cover of this record London Calling? Was it A Paul Simonson, B Joe Strummer or C Mick
1: Jones? It was Paul Simonon, the, the bass player.
0: Is it Simonon? I thought it was Simonson.
1: No, it's Simonon. Okay. It's Simonon and uh it's the bass player and um and then for another thing, if you look at the way it says, London calling down one side of the that down. They took that off of an Elvis record. Exactly. They took that, that off of an Elvis record. And um, it's just a perfect record. It's like, and I love the way Strummer screams. And, you know, he's not much of a singer, but he's super punk rock and passionate. And then yeah. you've got Mick Jones, who can actually really sing, who did, you know, their pop hits, you know. Right. And, uh, rocking the casbah and something and, and, and to seeing that just seeing the clean parts there you go but it really but but if you think about it like that was a time joe said if you could play a few chords and you can write a song then you can start a band and you can change the world yeah and no one's been you know that like that powered millions of kids i mean yeah like, you know, not to get too lofty and romantic about it, but it really, really did, man. It it changed music. There you
0: go. I would I, I haven't listened to the, I didn't listen to Clash growing up, so I was more of a Willie Whalen kind of kid growing up.
1: I was too.
0: My but, my, my
1: grandparents force fed me large <laughs> helpings. I mean, I you know when I went when I went to Nashville and. 96 and played on this wayland record called right for the time like any of the old stuff that they would start jamming i was like how do i know this now some of it i would yeah. played in honky tonks playing four sets a night you know mm-hmm. just shitholes and uh but some of it i was like i've never played this before but i knew my instrument well enough and i knew the part in my head yeah, yeah. um but you know it's interesting. That we don't have to be uh, complete and utter products of our environment, you know, and, and that's what makes it interesting is that you go out eventually, you know, you, yeah. you leave your hometown, maybe you go to college, you go work a job, and you meet a new circle of friends, and they turn you on to this music. And you know what I'm saying?
0: I do. I do. I didn't get turned on the Rolling Stones until I got until I was 19. And yeah,
1: but you're, you're a lot younger. Though.
0: I'm an old fart. I doubt it. I'm 51. I'm 56. Okay, so you're oh, you're a really old fart. Yeah. Uh, I am. yeah. I'm old. <laughs> well, okay. Here's my second quiz question about this album. It kind of relates to the one I just gave you. What was the reason that Paul was demolishing his guitar? Was it a he was fed up with Joe and Mick getting all the attention? Was it b he was frustrated that bouncers would not let the audience stand up out of their seats? Or c he always wanted a Gibson SG
1: bass. No, it, it was b.
0: That's right. That is right. See, I I would love to be able to push this button and go, everybody's clapping. but
1: Yeah, because he was, they were pissed off when they would make people sit down Yep. because they weren't used to that kind of crowd, like freaking out. I mean, yeah, you had rock and roll and people were dancing and standing up and all that stuff. But punk crowds were, if you saw those guys back in the day, it was like seeing some kind of military, like, I mean, it was like Paul and Mick would, march up to their mics and sing the background vocals. And then they would march back and then Joe would fall down on his knees. And it was a whole, you know, like it would drive people nuts. (laughs) Uh, But if you went back to most backstage scenes with the clash, they were hanging out with their fans. They were sneaking people in, they were giving them beer. Right. They were that, they were the people's band. Yeah, definitely.
0: Um so yeah you know i mean i I believe that this is you know i'm gonna say top five double albums for me you know i'm gonna throw exile Mm -hmm. in there too
1: yeah you put exile in there i mean there's some great double albums uh but you know that's how much material they had you know that's part about
0: it they didn't really have all the material well they write it. you know
1: that's how much they they walked away yeah yeah um you know, and a lot of crazy shenanigans went on while they were trying to make that record, and you know, people disappearing, and you know, them going back and forth to Jamaica, and you know, it was crazy. Yeah,
0: routine, um, going out and kicking the football around during lunchtime.
1: Yeah, I, I will say this, man if, the, if Joe and if Joe would have been better at being a star and working that and manipulating it. Like most people do. Yeah. They probably would have stayed together longer and had more hits, but if he would have been that way, it wouldn't have been as cool. The music wouldn't have been as cool.
0: Right on. Uh, I I'll take your you side on like, Yeah, no, I do.
1: Cause when I really, when I like, when I think of strummer, I think of, you know, it's like, there's certain people who've surpassed their genre Okay. Like Louis Armstrong surpassed jazz. Willie Nelson surpassed country music. Uh, Johnny Cash surpassed country music. Um, you know, just certain people who are bigger than what they came out of. They became, yeah. you know, if you could say country music, that's as much of a household word as Willie Nelson. Most people yes. know who I Willie go. Nelson is, right? And even though The Clash weren't like as... Uh, commercially successful Uh, I think that Joe his songs and his ideas about poetry and politics and this incendiary music kind of thing it surpassed punk like you know like they weren't just making punk rock records I don't think this
0: record is a punk record at all
1: I don't I mean I hear a punk attitude but I don't hear I don't hear it like white riot or their early stuff you know
0: yeah, I mean, I believe that rock and roll is an attitude, not a style of music. Absolutely. I believe that Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings are rock and roll.
1: Well, and that's a, that's a big controversy because kids, you know, have, they find out about Waylon and they go, oh, this guy's like real country. And the thing about it is, was when Waylon came to Nashville, Roy Acuff and that old guard... <sighs> They were freaked out, man. They were freaked out by Waylon, especially when he started wearing leather pants and growing his hair long. And they were freaked out, man. Yeah. And, 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 you know, they were like, oh, he's rock and roll, he's rock and roll, you know. Yeah. And they, they thought only daddy that'll walk the line and good hearted yeah. woman. They thought all that was like rock music. But, <laughs> but, what, but what had happened with those guys, it was so beautiful. It was in the 70s they they went and commandeered maybe 70 80% of the southern rock fans as their audience and they crossed over so they started playing shows you see Willie and the almond Brothers in mm-hmm. San Francisco or you'd see you know Waylon Waylon Gordon Lightfoot and Charlie Daniels you know and so the crossover for those guys that's how they became the biggest selling country artists of all time up until then was, you know, their music.
0: Even the lineups at the Armadillo, those were insane too. You know, you had Freddie King with Willie or whatever it was.
1: Dude, I got to tell you this. I use that as a, uh, I use that as a reference all the time because I tell people, I have friends of mine. I love San Francisco. I love playing there. Yeah. Last time I played there, uh, Actually, last time I played there, it's been a while before COVID. Um, But, uh, you know, you talk about Bill Graham and the eclectic bills that he put together. Yep. Okay? Take those same eclectic bills and add some hillbillies on it, which he really wasn't doing. Sure, Graham and Emmy Lou would come through. Mm -hmm. They would come through. But, man, you would have, like, Miles Davis at the happy hour early gig. Then it would be Frank Zappa and the mothers in invention at 10. And then at 12, it'd be Willie and white. I mean, it doesn't get any more drastically different than that.
0: Totally agree. Did it at the the armadillo as well. Um, so one, can we talk about your book? Sure. Okay. So you wrote, I told you this earlier. I love this book. It was one one of my top reads this year so far. Uh, top two I also really like the uh, Kathy Valentine autobiography that's yeah, great um, one of the my favorite things that you said in this book was that you know you always have a devil on your shoulder being a guitar player because you look at people and I do the same thing being a songwriter or whatever at saying oh I could do this better when you know really you should just appreciate the positive things that they do
1: absolutely yeah
0: so tell me a little bit about your book
1: uh, I mean the book is is basically back stage personal accounts that about people, you know, that I've worked with, Um, the only, I mean, it's been really great response, man. I mean, it's, it's been like people that I got to work with. I got a whole chapter on cash, a whole chapter on Mike Ness, a whole chapter on Rob Zombie whole chapter on, you know, Lucinda at the, you know, inaugural Bill Clinton's inaugural ball. And, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just stories uh, from my life, you know, and, um, and, uh, you know, I'm really, really happy with what, you know, the, we, I got a, I got a really nice publishing deal from um, this guy who edited uh, the Sex Pistols. He, he, he did uh, lonely boy for Steve. Okay. Right and he uh he did it's the same same uh guy uh and he also did the replacements uh book love those guys um but uh yeah it's you know and and there's some personal stuff in there about you know uh while all this great stuff was going on there's usually simultaneously some crazy you know stuff
0: yeah <laughs> uh another thing about the book that i loved is that you have two very commonalities with my wife i am from houston texas oh great and i grew up there and i went to astros games and my wife moved from indiana and she became a huge astros fan and i'm not really anymore i know the astros are your team you say it in the book yeah uh and he's she's also a gemini so
1: well there you go so i'll, I'll hang out and uh talk uh Stats, you know, we thought we'll, we'll praise uh Jose Altuve together, and yeah, you, you might get written off, man. You know, uh, I'm
0: telling you right now, i um, she has a whole astral support group that she these two other guys that she texts with uh, during the games. Oh, love All right, it. Well, the book, your book is called What?
1: It's called Bow Monster. I'm from Beaumont, Texas, and it was a slang name I made up when I was uh making a horror film. I went, I did, I did. Uh, four horror movies with Rob Zombie, and then I actually wrote and directed my own uh, that stars Malcolm McDowell and a bunch, uh-huh. bunch of cool people in it. It's just a little, you know, B movie zombie movie. And um, and anyway, I I said Bow Monster, and uh, so it just stuck. That's great.
0: So let's tell everybody where they where they can find you online. Facebook. You have a website.
1: Yeah, I mean, you go to JesseDate.com to look for dates. Uh, all my tour dates are up there. Uh, we're about to go to Australia next. Uh, and then uh, it looks like when I get back from there, I'm going to go and uh, work on a record in New York City okay. um, that I'm pretty excited about. And I got this new record coming out that Shooter Jennings uh, just produced. When's and, it come out? Uh, It won't be out till next year, but Shooter uh, has—I think he's won three Grammys in the last four years as a producer. So he's really kind of blown up. And I met him when he played when I played with his dad, right? And um, I love that story. And it's a great—it's—it's. I'm excited about the new record. It's got more guitar on it than any record I've ever done. Cool. Awesome.
0: Facebook, Instagram.
1: Yeah, I'm always on Instagram. It seems to be a little less hostile uh i check in on twitter and and facebook but i'm uh i'm on i'm on the gram more you know it seems a little it's a lot easier
0: a lot easier not not as people commenting on you but hey i had a great time you are a walking encyclopedia and i love this um yeah I, i always have a good time with people that know way more than i do so i really appreciate you this was an honor to have you on the show
1: today Actually, man thank you so much and uh nice to, nice to hang out with you it was easy
0: yeah yeah well it's not supposed to be hard It's supposed to be fun you're supposed to smile yeah. a lot in this thing
1: yeah and if you're you, not having fun don't do it
0: that's right quit stop that's when you that's when you quit that's,
1: that's, <laughs> when, that's what
0: i tell my band it was like you're not having fun then get out of here um all right all
1: right, all right well brother. thanks a lot yeah take care of yourself
0: man that was a blast great conversation and he nailed i think he nailed all the quiz questions uh, many thanks to all those who are still listening, and please, please, please go check out his music. It's so good. And I highly recommend his book, Bow Monster. If you got the gumption, head over to thebiggunshow.com and check out what my band is up to these days. You can also catch us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, all with the handle of The Big Gun Show Band. The Band beginning and end. our most consistent gig is our monthly residency at the little longhorn saloon here in austin texas home of chicken shit bingo play the happy hour on the first friday of every month bring grandma i promise she'll have a blast close your eyes You're back in iowa again what five records do you have when i ever get over you or should to